Welcome to Timber. I'm John Christensen, a Timber co-founder. Timber is podcast hosting for people dedicated to the craft of audio storytelling. And we're also a place to read about these same people and what they do to amaze our ears. Today we have another story by Angela Chen about a podcast called Probable Causation. Something that's cool about this piece is that I responded with it to somebody over on Reddit named Melduin, uh, who said that they were having a hard time with toxicity in their scientific field. You know, no support for their podcasts coming from leaders and peers in their field. And I wrote, you know, um, Angela Chin wrote a story on Timber that talked about some of the same same stuff. And Meldwin replied back, wow, thanks so much for sharing this. I was not really aware of this story. It is indeed relatable. Thank you. So hopefully it's relatable to you too. And it's useful as a way to learn about how to become a better podcaster. The academic whose podcast is trying to change the law. Probable causation wants to bring research out of the ivory tower and into the fabric of our lives. By Angela Chen. June 30th, 2020. For that class of workers known as the media, reach is everything, and having an audience is the ultimate goal. For academics, however, the equation is inverted. Writing for the public can be considered a quirk at best. At worst, a distraction from the real, important work of the ivory tower. Original research and publication. So says Jennifer Doliak, an associate professor of economics at Texas A&M University. My approach to academia has been not to worry too much about what academia wants me to do. Doliak is the creator and host of Probable Causation, a podcast about economics, law, and crime. The format is simple. Doliak has a conversation with a fellow economist, typically about a particular paper or research question. And the topics are broad, but the questions are specific, rigorous, and often at the center of many hot-button political issues that lead today's headlines. What happens when you criminalize sex work? What are the effects of having a parent or sibling incarcerated? That one might surprise you. Are syringe exchange programs helpful or harmful? The answers can be counterintuitive, and unintended consequences is a common refrain. In one of her favorite episodes, Doliak sits down with Rutgers University economist Amanda Egan to discuss the effects of ban-the-box policies, which prevent employers from asking job applicants about their criminal background. The well-intentioned policies are meant to prevent hiring discrimination against those who were previously convicted. Yet research, including work from Doliak herself, has shown that ban-the-box policies actually decrease employment for Black or Hispanic men without a criminal background. Employers Unable to ask outright, simply hire fewer applicants from the groups they assume are likely to have criminal records. Unintended consequences, indeed. So what we find is that Ban the Box reduces employment for young Black men without a college degree by 5%. Uh, We also find less robust evidence that it reduces employment for Hispanic men in the same group by 3%. Um, we run a zillion robustness checks and additional mm-hmm. tests, as you do in these kinds of papers, to complement that main analysis. Um, and we find that the negative effects of ban the box are larger when unemployment rates are higher. Um, that is, when employers have more applicants to choose from, which gives them more power to discriminate. We also find that effects are driven by a drop in job finding for Black men rather than an increase in job loss, which is, of course, in line with what we'd expect if ban the box is affecting the hiring process. We can also look at who gets the jobs that young Black men no longer get. 
So the story seems to be that public employers substitute from young black men to older black men who are a better bet if you are trying to avoid someone actively engaged in crime. Private employers substitute from young black men to young white men, which is in line with the results from your study where the context was private ban the box laws. So that's our paper. Our paper is now forthcoming at the Journal of Labor Economics. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And, and just to, almost to step back for just one second, just reiterate something that you said before, is that this question is hard, right? Mm-hmm. Because our large national surveys, the CPS, the ACS, they don't ask whether somebody has a criminal record, right? And so it's hard, particularly in a broad national context, to really try to get at the question of, okay, well, how does ban the box actually impact the group it was meant to directly impact, um, which are people with criminal records who might be in the labor market? This is the type of research that should be in the hands of policymakers and which could impact hundreds of thousands of people. Doliak was used to tweeting about the papers and writing op-eds, but it would take her a full day to finish an 800-word column. So she thought a bi-weekly podcast might save time. And though there were crime podcasts, Serial, My Favorite Murder, and economics podcasts, Econ Talk and Economics Detective, and policy podcasts, The Weeds, There weren't any at the intersection of these topics that featured a conversation between two experts. The first step is Google. Probable causation began with Doliak Googling how to start a podcast and wondering what type of microphone she'd need. Picking the people to interview would be easy, but networking was necessary to find those who could come up with the logo and title and intro music. Eventually, she received funding from Emergent Ventures, a fellowship program from George Mason University's Mercatus Center, and was able to hire sound engineer Carolyn Hockenberry, who helps us make the most articulate version of ourselves. In some ways, a podcast is far more work than writing, but once the team fell into a rhythm, the advantage of the new format became clear. Doliak was in full control of the episodes, and it helped her discuss and promote relevant research at a steadier rate than all that time spent pitching and shaping op-eds. Audience building can take a back seat since probable causation isn't Doliak's main job. Still, being a frequent guest on other podcasts, including recently Freakonomics, and being active on Twitter have helped increase reach. Doliak is an expert in her field and so, in a sense, did much of the audience building before creating the podcast. If you're interested in criminal justice policy, you might find her through any number of channels, her writing, a tweet analyzing the news on your timeline, and then you'll learn about probable causation on her social media, website, and the bios she sends to event organizers for conference programs. It's a natural extension of her other work. As for the episodes, there doesn't seem to be any pattern to success. She's often surprised by which episodes do well. The podcast exists in an interesting space. It's academia, but not necessarily for academics. One audience undoubtedly consists of economics and econ students, and it's been gratifying for Doliak to see her colleagues using episodes in class, especially in recent months as instruction has gone online. But the second audience, policymakers, is in some ways the real audience, the target audience. It's nice to see podcast downloads go up. But the best thing is receiving emails from policymakers who listen. And that happens far more than Doliak would have expected. As she puts it, it makes me feel like I'm doing something right. Academia, not for academics. It's probably not a coincidence that academics who are not taught how to communicate their work to the public are not always the best at communicating their work to the public. 
We are left to develop these skills on our own, Doliak says. But ultimately, my view is the more we write for a smart lay audience, the more impact we have within our profession. Now, while attending conferences, she scouts for people who might be good at explaining their research via podcasts, which is not something she would have ever thought about before. And when she does approach others, academics can be super nervous about talking about their work. The way we usually tell guests is, we will use the jargon, but then we will also explain what it means, Doliak says. For the podcast to be of value to a wider audience, the content cannot be entirely insular. So they will say the words regression discontinuity, but also explain the term so that a general listener can understand. Doliak doesn't coach anyone on how to speak. But she will spend time scripting out a particularly difficult technical detail and thinking about how best to explain it. Or she'll reiterate what's said in a slightly different way in the hopes that her explanation and the repetition will land. Other times, her work as a host is less about technical details and more about reassurance, encouraging her guests to be less hesitant in laying out the takeaways and arguing for why people should care. Many academics, especially junior scholars, and myself when I was newer and just out of grad school, can be shy about drawing policy conclusions because they are so aware of each and every caveat. In general, the best advice to academics is to never spend your time making a podcast, Zoliak jokes. And beyond that, know that discussing nuances is good, but don't be afraid to talk about the impact your research can and should have. The podcast recently celebrated its one-year anniversary, and now that would be two years from when this was written, and has received funding for another year. Doliak still hasn't been able to bring herself to re-listen to the first couple of episodes, but believes she's a better interviewer than at the beginning. Downloads continue to go up, and she has a strong online following of academics and journalists and policymakers who all know about probable causation by now. I'm still learning the ins and outs of podcasting, but one of the things that surprised me was how much I would learn from these one-hour conversations with people I know pretty well and see at conferences all the time, she says. It's been such an incredible gift to have these people be willing to spend an hour just letting me pick their brain about this topic that they have often spent years studying, and I'm just blown away every two weeks by their brilliance. I'm looking forward to more of that. Probable causation is not a substitute for academic research, but it is a contribution and a different challenge and crucially fun. People who are professors in general work very hard to get to a point where we basically get to think about whatever we want, Doliak says, and I tend to view it as an important public service to put some of that thought and knowledge back into the world. Thanks for listening to this story. I've been your host, John Christensen. And music, sound design, engineering, and mastering was done by Roy England.